0: Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly Donardo here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat.
1: Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life.
0: Hey Amy, are you ready for season two? I am not only ready, I am so excited to share all of this good juice with everybody. We've got such a great lineup of guests this season, it's pretty exciting. So I thought we would start before with a little preview of season two. In season one, we looked at what yoga is, what gets in the way, how it impacts our relationships, our identity, our happiness, and then what meditation's role is in our yoga practice. For this season, we decided to focus on the Yamas and the Niyamas. So let's actually tell our listeners who may have forgotten what they actually are. Well, I like to think of the Yamas and the
1: Niyamas as attitudinal practices uh, that we can use on a day-to-day basis to prepare ourselves actually to get happier and actually to get closer to who we are in our essence. It's It's a a map that was outlined in the Yoga Sutra text 2,000 years ago as a systematic practice to prepare essentially for what we think of as maybe more traditional yoga practices, like doing the postures, doing a physical asana practice, or practicing meditation, or using the breath as a point of focus. They're, They're actually preparatory, if we look at them systematically, preparatory practices. And so the first limb, the yamas, are more of the moral and ethical guidelines sometimes you could think of them like a condensed um, uh, commandments like the 10 commandments every kind of philosophy has some kind of ethical guidelines so that's how i think of the first limb and then i think of the second limb as what we do the actions that we take and the right attitudes that we have to apply in order to get to a place to meditate and to be happier and to live to our potential so they're they're preparatory for me and they're probably the hardest part actually of yoga practice for me off the mat. This is a this is what we're talking about in the sutras.
0: So you just touched on something that I think is really interesting is that there are five yamas and five niyamas and people call them often yoga's 10 commandments. I don't love the word commandment because it feels so dogmatic. dogmatic. I totally yeah. agree, I totally agree. But it's basically yoga's
1: moral code, is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think of them as guidelines because if what we're ultimately trying to do, if what the Yoga Sutra says is that the state of yoga is when the mind is uninterrupted, when we have clarity of mind, when we're experiencing inner peace, Patanjali, the codifier, offers them first because if you think about it, I'm not going to be able to sit on a cushion for an extended amount of time and steady my mind if I'm raging out in my head about something, or if I'm, if I haven't done things that are going to prepare me just in a physical sense, if I'm not eating well, and if I'm not speaking well, and if I'm caught up in the state of greed, and all the things that we're experiencing emotionally, there's no way I'm going to be able to go inward. So Mm -hmm. they're they're really necessary stages. for, For those of us who haven't yet awoken to, you know, being an enlightened person and a uh, an easy person and a kind person in it naturally, but they're, right. they're disciplines on how to get into that
0: place. Well, and you've heard me say this before, but one of the things I really love about the eight limbs is that it's almost contradictory to where we are culturally now, where, you know, now we start with, I'm going to work on myself and then the rest of the world and then everything else. You do you first. But I think. What the sutras are saying, or what the eight limbs are saying, is you work outward in. So the yamas really are, even though they apply to how we treat ourselves, they're really guidelines for how we behave in the world and treat others. And then the niyamas are about how we treat ourselves. And then we move further inward by dealing with our body and then our breath and then our mind, which I think is really interesting. I think it's the only way, because if I'm bound up in what's going on outside of me in my external
1: world, there's there's going to be a mirror to that internally. If I'm angry outside, I'm going to be – there's going to be anger inside. Or if I'm – if I have – so one of them, for example, is how I think of like clinging or reaching for something. If I'm always reaching externally, there's not going to be an internal quietness. So I I think it makes sense that we have to look at how we're acting in the world. We have to take responsibility for our actions if we're going to actually – have a better relationship with ourselves. Absolutely. Well, let's go through them. So, Amy, what's the first yama? The first yama is really the umbrella to th- I think of all of yoga. If we were able to just take this one, the others I think could fall away, but we all have different different definitions of what this first ethical code is. And in Sanskrit it's called ahimsa. And the root word is hims which means to harm. And so it is actually suggesting we have to live without harm. It's non-harming, non-violence, it's often translated as. And don't we know that that is the hardest thing for all humanity is to live in a state of peace with others and with ourselves. But Patanjali, he's not shy. He goes right into it and he says, all right, those of you who are interested in becoming awakened, the first code of conduct is beginning to practice nonviolence. And if we look at the sutras further down, one of the most interesting things to me about this is not only about you know the kind of violence that we understand we can even look at toddlers and say like now don't don't hit your friend johnny <laughs> you know that's not nice we understand physical violence and you know war violence and all the things that we see can look outside very easily and find around us uh, violence in music violence in media you know this is violent but patanjali says it actually starts with internal thought mm-hmm. and there's a lot of time spent learning to explore what it means to have a what is a violent thought and that a violent thought is actually if not as harmful even more harmful than these external acts of violence because they stem from internal violence
0: right and we talk a lot about how this is in in living the sutras about how this starts with ourselves this is our thoughts our words and our actions not just these overt Images of violence that we have in the world today. So, talk to us then if, if Ahimsa is the first one, then then what comes next? So,
1: I like to think of the other four as almost like Ahimsa's one, and the others are 1A, 1B, 1C, and 1D. <laughs> the D. support system. A support system because, yeah. you know, we could, this could be a topic in itself. You know, some yogis and some, not even non non-yog- yogis, but some people believe it's harmful to eat meat, for example, or even to eat um, anything that's come from an animal. You know, we have veganism, and I've gone through different periods. I was a, a vegetarian for almost 21 years, and then I started bringing meat, for example, back into my diet, conscious meat, when I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, and so that's why I think there's these, sub, these subtenants, because I might not think anymore that it's violent to, might be more, might be more violent for me not to eat meat for my body. You know, that's something we could talk about at some
0: point. So, yeah, yeah. actually, you know, Diane Bondi, who is our, one of our guests this season, talks about how this vegetarianism in particular is, and veganism is a tenant for a lot of yogis because of ahimsa but that for people with eating disorders that can be very triggering and actually cause more harm so you know i think it's really important to look at it in a whole picture of what is truthful and honest to you and who you
1: are right which is where the second yama i think comes in the second yama is really about being truthful and honesty the word might be translated as to be in truth or to live with truth. But again, that's individual. My truth, what's truthful and, and right for me might not be right for you. Um, but it, this is also about truth and speech. Um, the second one being honesty. And mm-hmm. I love one of the things that is translated in the second book of the sutras around honesty that Patanjali says. He says, for someone who speaks only the truth, and has right speech, now we know how difficult this is. I mean, this is going beyond exaggeration, gossiping, all of these things that are, you know, hearsay are all parts of maybe not being right with speech. Um, He says that when one is so clear in their speech, anything they say will become manifest. In other words, if you can get so clear and so pure in your word, your word actually creates even more truth. Your word creates more truth. Your word creates more truth. And so for me, it's one that I use quite a lot. One of my favorite books, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, he talks about impeccability with the word in a very similar way and how different our lives become when we actually investigate the truth and then start applying what we find in our word Therefore, you know, in our deed and right. in our action.
0: Yeah, he says. We quote this in the book, and he says, "The word is the most powerful tool you have as a human. It is the tool of magic. What you dream, what you feel, and what you really are will all be manifested through the word." So, okay, let's. We want to. We want to give a brief rundown of this. So, I'm going to jump us right to the next one. Talk to us about the third yama. So
1: the third na- the third yama is non stealing. And very much like non-harming, you know, we can think about it in the very basic sense that I know better not to walk into the store and put a pack of gum in my pocket and walk out. I clearly know that's stealing, that's taking something that's not mine. But this can go even further into accepting what is mine, the opposite sort of non-covetousness. You know, maybe maybe I want for something which falls into the next one, is, or the last one as well, which is what we can talk about is about greed. But in this case, not taking what isn't mine. We could apply this everywhere. Is Maybe it's stealing for me to take responsibility for something that's not mine to take responsibility for. Maybe that's mm-hmm. your job and I, and I take that opportunity away from you. That could be a form of stealing. So that's a big blanket um, of a code of conduct that we could look at. So non-stealing is the third. The fourth is moderation.
0: Oh, wait. I'm going to pause you there because I love what you said. and. The it's This is something we talked about again in the book. It's taking ideas, love, and attention and time that isn't freely given. We steal from ourselves when we don't express our need and deprive ourselves of help. We rob others of their time when we're late to meet them. And we let our mind steal us away from the present moment and from the full experience. So we have to like really broaden the definition of how we steal. And for each of these, each of these can go so
1: brought into every experience in our life. You know, I use the yamas and niyamas. I think this happens after 25 years of yoga study and teaching. I can't not anymore see through the filter of these yamas and niyamas. Mm -hmm. When I come to a crossroads and I have to make a decision or I'm in a sticky place or just not a place – Of so much ease, I try to go through and say, like, all right, what am I not paying attention to? Am I am I grasping? Am I not being honest with myself? Mm -hmm. Am I trying to control the situation and get more out of it? You know, that's there's non-stealing. There's a type of stealing right there.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the fourth one. This one has a kind of dirty reputation, but that is not how we talk about it. No,
1: we simply translate the fourth yama as moderation. And, boy, that's a good word for Western culture, isn't it? Moderation. Mm-hmm. I was, I've was i been traveling back and forth this week um, to visit my father, who's in the hospital. And, of course, when you travel, you have to stop at places like gas stations and convenience stores to get things. And I went in to get a small coffee at this gas station, and it must have been 20 ounces or 16 <laughs> ounces. You know, and I asked for a small I thought, boy, we really – we want – This is about how we always want more in some part, too. So moderation could be moderation of diet. It could be moderation of food. But it comes from a Sanskrit word made of two words called brahmacharya. And brahma, for some of the listeners you might know, is a word given to... Name the omnipresent or God or what we might think of as source. Like we've all come from source. That's the word Brahma. Mm-hmm. Acharya is like um, a devotee or a great student. If you imagine someone who's standing like a warrior and they're ready for a kind of committed battle, or maybe a devotee like a monk, somebody like that, they're they're called an acharya. So if we looked at these two words together, it means. Uh, a follower of Brahma, follower of the source. It means you act like you act Mm godlike. And so many historians kind of think that this was applying to being not just moderate, but abstinent and abstinent from everything, you know, withholding certain joys, withholding sex, withholding food and fasting. And it can mean that. But we take it to mean something maybe a little bit more healthy and balanced and applicable is just like looking at how we're moderate. We don't have to be so abstinent because in a minute when we get to the niyamas, we're going to find out that one of them, tapas, also has a reputation where it sounds like we've got to be so austere. And I don't think that was Patanjali's intention. I think it was about the right use of energy. And that's how, that's how I look at brahmacharya. Like, am I being moderate with my speech, moderate with my food intake,
0: my sleep, the way I All of it, you know, and it's... It's the idea that we should use our energy and power for something greater, something good. For something good. And for
1: something Mm -hmm. greater is a perfect way to translate it because if we're in the line of Brahmacharya, we're going to act greater. We're going to look at the big picture. Our actions are going to support everything, not just us, but it's a more inclusive, a world-inclusive view to be moderate. Great. Okay, tell us about the last yama. So the last yama we translate is greedlessness. And I mean, that that's a pretty tall order to live without any greed or any desire or any want, um, mm. right? Isn't it to be without greed? I have—I—I I want for things every day, you know? Right. I, I, want a, I want a cup of coffee or I want somebody to pay attention to me or I want to get the next contract signed, whatever it might be. So how do we do that in a way that is... Not so much not about having desires, but it's a little bit about patience. The Mm. word in Sanskrit, "aparigraha" has a root word, graha. And that word means to grasp or to reach for. And this is to kind of go against that. It's about non-grasping or non-reaching so that that creates greedlessness but i think the way in which to practice not being greedy is to learn how we're reaching how we're running after things so i was mentioning before it's one that i like it's one that i've really been working for because i'm somebody who when i when i have a goal in mind or i have a a project I want to work on or there's something I want to better about myself, I want to start taking action right away. And I start kind of running after it. Well, that running after it, if we don't get it in the time we think we should, that's that's sort of the opposite of this yama. That's like grasping, reaching, and that chasing kind of feeling, that striving that's not so much about waiting and letting go and putting the effort and the energy in, that to me is what Aparigraha is about. There's a, there's a very trustful kind of, Attitude, and that takes us out of the present moment, right? When we're doing that, it keeps us caught in the future, sort of avoiding the past. And it doesn't mean to be without goals, or it doesn't mean to strive to become better. But it's like taking the taking the action, and then having the patience, and not not running after something with such desperation.
0: Right. Okay. Let's talk about the niyamas then, and these are meant to be how we treat ourselves, even though certainly they apply to the outside world as well. Certainly they do. And I'm always very interested in the order of these, mm. and the yamas
1: and the niyamas. But the niyamas are interesting to me because the first two, in my mind, are the results of the last three. And we see this happen a lot in the sutras. Patanjali says, your natural state is bliss. Your natural state is happiness. And the only reason you're not experiencing that is because the mind isn't clear. You're seeing things without clarity. There isn't there isn't purity. There isn't, um, something is foggy. There's things in the way clouding your understanding and so therefore there are things you have to do in order to take away the cloud. It's like this, you've got your car in the car wash and right before your car comes out of the car wash, before you pull out the door, it's getting dried off for those last 35 seconds. That is the moment your car is the cleanest. <laughs> mm. And the minute you pull out, it's already starting to accumulate dirt, bu- smudges, smudges bugs, bu- right. bugs, and this process of cleaning your car is maintenance. If you're going to have a clean car, you have to keep doing it. It just doesn't stay clean, right? The first niyama also could have a sort of opposite connotation. It, it translates as purity, and it's we talk about it not being like, a kind of Pollyanna purity or innocent purity, but it means that there's clarity. There's been purification process. Like when the car is clean, you can see its beautiful shine. When the mind is clean, you can see clearly through it. When the body is clean, you know, energy moves better. So this this first Niyama in my mind is really about what occurs. There is there's clarity there's clarity, there's cleanliness, which then gives us the second Niyama, which is contentment. Mm. So contentment arises and out of this state of purity. But how do we purify? That's what the next three niyamas are talking about. They're actually grouped kind of separately in one sutra as the definition of what yoga is in action or Kriya Yoga. And what yoga is or how you achieve clarity so that you can eventually be content comes from the combination of the last three niyamas, which is discipline, self-study, and a type of surrender, trustful surrender. And so they, they kind of are the results, in my mind, of the first two, if that makes sense.
0: So we talk about the last three kind of working together the way Charles Duhigg talks about the power of habit, right? We need good practices, um, that's discipline, And we need time to kind of recognize the cues and routines. That's self-study. And then we need faith. But it's not faith the way we often think about faith as in some sort of guru or God on high, something that we're believing in. But faith in the fact that we can adopt a new perspective, let old behaviors go, faith in ourselves, really, in our own divine goodness. Is that kind of how you take that as well? I do, and the last one in particular, I always think of
1: these bookends. You know, I was mentioning that I think the kind of start of the sutras and the eight limbs that Patanjali gives us of nonviolence, this is also the big close. He says we have to practice nonviolence, non-harm, and then here are the other ways in which to do that. But then there's this this 10th one is, I think, the other the other end of the umbrella, the other bookend. After all of that, he says... Ishvara pranidana which Ishvara is another name for the divine and um pranidana is a kind of way in which we're going to fully surrender into it it means trustful surrender so mm-hmm. after we do all of these actions yet at the end of the day you have to have faith that that was it that you did we did enough and you kind of give up to a greater power i think you and i even say in the book it's a type of accepting um, not detaching but it's mm-hmm. a type of acceptance that we have to develop, the ability to hold space for. Like, I, we accept that this is what it is and that the right thing is going to be revealed, if that makes sense. So, it's, again, it's another kind of non-clinging. It's another type of letting go.
0: And mm-hmm. it's having faith in the process itself. Absolutely. Well, and this season, we talked to 10 different guests about different interpretations and ways that they're actually living it. So we hope you join us for season two. We'll see you next week. We'll be dropping a new episode each Monday for the next 10 weeks. Thank you so much. We love doing this, so if you love hearing it, please rate and review us on iTunes. Be sure to tune in and subscribe, and we'll see you in a week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Living It podcast. If you're interested in deepening your practice, join Amy for her upcoming retreat in Mexico, December 1st through the 8th. Details are at TantraMadison.com. Or join me in a new online course I'm launching this fall. The course includes daily worksheets that'll help keep the practice personal and tangible and a weekly group discussion. For the yoga teachers out there, the class is eligible for CEUs through Yoga Alliance. But of course, it's not just for yoga teachers. To join the list and learn more, send me an email at kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at livingatpodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in.